Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm speaking with Mikhail Kalmagorov. Mikhail is a PhD student at uh, the University of California, San Diego, at Pavel Pevsner's lab. And uh, we will be talking about genome assembly and the assembler that Mikhail works on, which is called Fly. Mikhail, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Roman. Uh, Mikhail, tell us a bit about yourself and your background. So I'm originally from Yekaterinburg, um, and I moved to St. Petersburg for, um, for college. I did my bachelor's in applied math, and then I found about this exciting program in bioinformatics in St. Petersburg University of the Russian Academy of Sciences. It is a uh, very small school um, near St. Petersburg Polytechnic University. There's maybe a hundred, hundred PhD students and I think now they have master's students as well. And they had this small program in bioinformatics. So I enrolled and initially I wanted to simply work on fun computer science problems and write algorithms, implement them. I, I wanted to become a, a good coder, programmer. And then I realized that I actually like research. I, I like bioinformatics and I, I like um, writing papers. I like uh, basically doing some some new stuff. Um, and I graduated from from this master program in Saint Petersburg. And then I went to UC San Diego for to start a PhD program um, five years ago, I believe. And now I'm here. It's been five years. I'm almost done with uh, my PhD degree hopefully. And I'm, I'm excited to tell you more about, about stuff that I'm working on. So you're working on the assembler called Fly. Is that the project that you started in the lab or was it already going when you arrived? Um, it's, that's a good question. So this is not the first project I've been working on. So I, I was working on Fly for maybe two years maybe a little more and like there were some other projects uh, on 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 different topics that I've been working like since I started my program uh regarding fly uh this was there were some efforts going on in the lab um it was it was a previous um some previous students and postdocs in in Pavel's lab um uh, Yulin, um, who used to be a postdoc and he's now a professor in, in Australian National University and, uh, a, another PhD student, Jeffrey Yuan, uh, he recently graduated and he, uh, he's now at Illumina in, here in San Diego. It's, it's a, a it's a big, uh, biotech sequencing company. Uh, so they've been working on a precursor to fly called Abruin. Um, and this is where they were developing the methods to, to, for finding overlaps between, uh, long and noisy reads. Um, and the idea was based on, on this frequent solid cameras. And this is, it's kind of, it became later, it became the part of fly. So I joined the project on this stage. So, um, since these guys were working on April and there was another sort of independent 
uh, independent project, independent efforts on uh, consensus calling and polishing, because um, in in long reads we typically uh, separate the structural assembly, and then uh, once you have the structure, you you also need to get your nucleotide base quality to um, you need to get it right. And this is almost like a separate problem. And so these guys were working on this as well. When so that's what you call polishing? This is Yes, this is polishing. And uh, there is an interesting story behind the name fly. Do you want to tell it? Um, so the story goes that um, fly was a French mathematician, I believe. And well, fly is um, his last name, I think. He's been working on the brewing graphs as well, and he was actually the first to prove um, some facts about the brewing graph sequences, what we now call the brewing graph sequences, but at this time it was just some some like binary sequences. Um, and he was the first one to prove, I think, the fact about the existence of the brewing sequence. So the brewing sequence is basically a... Originally, it used to be defined on over the binary alphabet. So it's a binary sequence uh, such that it encodes um, it encodes all possible substrings of of length k. So now we denote this as k-mers, and uh, you want to find a minimal sequence sequence like this. And like at this time, people didn't know if the sequences even exist and. I believe uh, this mathematician fly in, I'm pretty sure my, my French pronunciation is not correct. I apologize for this. But he was the first one to prove the existence of, of these sequences for binary alphabets. And, and De Bruyne was working on, on, on these sequences as well. And he, I mean, they got his name. But he, De Bruyne himself acknowledged that fly was, was, um, his work was one of the first work on, on this kind of sequences and graphs. So this is why we picked this name. Very cool. And uh, I should probably explain the, the connection. So the mm -hmm. De Bruyne graphs that are used for assembly, they were also used to prove the existence of this De Bruyne sequence. That's correct, yes. Yeah. De, De Bruyne sequence does not simply share the name with De Bruyne graphs, they're actually connected. Oh, and of course. La later, De Bruyne graphs were uh, utilized for, for genome assembly. Mm -hmm. And so, as we know, De Bruyne graphs are one way to do genome assembly, right. but there are all sorts of different graphs used for assembly, and uh, today we will talk about your own flavor of, mm -hmm. of these assembly graphs. But can you make a general overview, a brief general overview of like the various graphs that are used for assembly? Um, right. So I think historically one of the first and very uh, sort of natural approaches that was proposed was overlap graphs. So I sort of need to, to do an introduction of, of of genome assembly problem in, in, in general, right? So it, but it's very simple. So you have your, the goal is to, to read the sequence of a genome and it could be small genome and people historically started to work with 
small viruses and and phage, uh, and then they started to analyze more more like complex genomes such as bacteria, and then they moved to eukaryotes, to Drosophila, and then finally to humans. And the technology does not allow you to sequence the entire chromosome sequence or genome sequence. Instead, you can only sample short substrings of this sequence called reads, but you can sample as as many reads as you want in gen- generally. And so what your results into would be a huge set of these short overlapping sequences, reads. And then your computational problem is, given these short sequences, you need to assemble them back into the original uh, chromosome, original string. And a very natural idea is that, okay, if you have a two, if you have two reads that overlap, right, that share a sufficient overlap, overlapping sequence, they probably come from a related region of the genome. And this way you can uh, take all your, all your, your reads and um, define them as nodes on, on your graph. And you will connect the overlapping reads with an edge. And this structure, uh, this, this graph is what people call overlap graph. And basically it encodes your, um, there exists a path in this graph that encodes your uh, genomic sequence because you can traverse from one read to another read and so on, and this way you can traverse your original chromosome. And now the problem is how, how would you find this path corresponding to your original sequence? Uh, and th- these are like different sorts of algorithms to, for doing this, and it depends on the genome, on the genome size, and the genome complexity. And there are like many, many... Uh, different flavors, and it applies to also to different sequencing technologies. So, we, mm, yeah, but the original idea is you put a node for each read, and you connect two nodes with an edge if if these two reads share sufficient overlap. So this is overlap graph. And this approach was very popular for... Um, so it's historically, I think, uh, used to be the first approach that was proposed, I think in early 90s, maybe even even before. And it was also popularized by uh, Jean Myers, who used to be a researcher at Celera Genomics. And um, this approach was uh, first applied for Sanger sequencing reads uh, that were Roughly hundred, uh, roughly a thousand base pairs in length. And for comparison, uh, a simple bacterial genome is, is several million, seven million base pairs. In. So uresis are like basically, uh, hundred thousand times shorter than your genome. And, um, so they, Basically, was we're working on whole genome assembler, uh, and this was resulted into something called Celera assembler. And they used this assembler to assemble Drosophila genome first, and then they actually um, used it to assemble human genome, at least parts of of the human genome in uh, during the human genome sequencing project. And there was an alternative approach that was proposed a bit later. 
uh, I think in in the middle of 1990s, and uh, it it kind of began to so people began to implement it in in early 2000s, I believe. And this is called De Bruyne Graph, and this is like uh, this was based on these De Bruyne graphs that we were just talking about. Um, and originally, I think proposed by uh, me, uh, my Quartermans group. And my current uh, advisor, Paul Pesner, he used to be uh, his postdoc, so he he used to work on on these different graphs, and uh, I believe he's one of the people who actually like popularized this approach, and this resulted into into many uh, many practical assemblers later on. And mm, this approach was originally proposed for Sanger Reed, the Bruin graphs approach, but it turns out that um, it was actually much more useful for the next generation of sequencing technologies, uh, such as Illumina sequencing. And this, this is, this is how we, we, we denote this, <laughs> this set of technologies, next generation sequencing technologies, right? Um, and the difference is with Illumina sequencing, you get much shorter reads. Instead of thousand space pairs, you can get a hundred base pairs and even shorter. It was even shorter at this, at like this time, maybe 50 base pairs. On the other hand, you can produce the streets in parallel very quickly. And this is, this is, was, uh, by the orders of magnitude cheaper than, uh, Sengirid sequencing. And this is why a lot of, well, mo most of the people Switched from Sanger sequencing to to short read sequencing um, really fast, and it turned out that the Bruin graphs were actually very useful in in case of short read sequencing because uh, with short reads you get shorter, yeah, you get shorter fragments, but the number of fragments is significantly higher. Uh, you you get significantly more fragments than you would get with Sanger reads. And as a result, in overlap graph, you need to compute uh, pairwise alignments between all read pairs. And it became very expensive for uh, massive short parallel sequencing because the number of, of fragments is so much higher. And on the other hand, the Bruin graphs, in the Bruin graphs, you, you don't need to do pairwise comparisons between reads. Instead, you're using these uh, k-mers to build the graph. And this, this was one of the reasons why, uh, the Bruin graphs became so popular, I believe. And, uh, short tree sequencing, I think it was most of the popular genome assemblers on short, based on short tree sequencing were based on the Bruin graphs. So the Bruin graphs are more efficient, uh, than, than overlap graphs for assembly because you can quickly build them, but uh, do we lose anything when transitioning to De Bruyne graphs? Are there any downsides? Um, so, you use some connectivity information, because to build De Bruyne graphs, you split your reads into shorter fragments called kamers. And typically, if you have short reads of length, maybe hundreds, then uh, you will be working with gamers size, gamers of size, maybe 50. And you will, you will be basically building the graph from this, like, shorter substrings. Um, and 
This is why you sort of lose some long-range information from reads. But this this is all. This only happens during the uh, stage when you build the graph. So once you build the green graph, you will then reuse the information from reads by. Uh, so what assemblers typically do? They uh, build the graph, and they they map your original reads back on this graph, and then they try to simplify this graph um, based on this uh, this path that's like based on the street path that reads induce on the graph. So yes, you're sort of losing the connectivity information during the graph construction, but then you you still have access to reads information and then you can trace how how reads traverse the graph and then you can simplify this graph. So in the end you both overlap and the Bruin graph uh, algorithms should, in the end, they should theoretically produce the optimal assembly given this uh, set of reads. Okay, so so we've covered the Sanger sequencing, we've covered next generation sequencing, but next came uh, long read sequencing, and how how did that impact the art and science of assemblers? Well, um, it's impacted. Uh, well, the impact was huge. And basically, it turns out that people needed completely new algorithms to to assemble long reads, and this is because of two things. So, long reads are basically much much longer than Illumina reads. So, for comparison, Illumina Illum, in, with the mo, with the current Illumina machines, you might get, I think, the maximum would be two hundred and fifty nucleotides reads of this length. And and you might get pairs of these reads, right? So you might get pairs of uh, reads of 250 and separated by maybe uh, 500 nucleotides. And then with long reads, you can get uh, routinely get tens of thousands uh, nucleotides long reads. And the current people are also interested in, in increasing this length. And currently with um, there exist some protocols called ultra long reads, and with these protocols and with uh, PacBy and uh, Oxford Nanopore sequencing uh, sequencers, you might even get reads over hundred thousands. And I think some some labs were managed to get even even millions of uh, nucleotides long reads, and this is this is super exciting. On the other hand, the problem with these technologies is that error rate is so much higher. So for Illumina reads used to be very, very accurate. So um, the error rate was less than 0.1%. So for for a read of length 100, there's like a high chance that there are no errors in these reads uh, at all. And the, the error modes were also very um, sort of... Mm, Convenient, because uh, Illumina errors were just space substitutions. For long reads, for PugBy and for Oxford Nanopores, the error rate is roughly 15%, 10 to 15%, so compared to 0.1%. Um, and then the, the errors are mostly insertions and deletions, and they are much harder to handle in the algorithms. So... 
uh, bottle lime, you get much longer reads, but the error rate is also much higher. So, and you need, you need new algorithms to handle this, uh, data. And, uh, there already exist some algorithms that can cope with the specifics of long reads, right? Mm-hmm. What are the issues with those assemblers that you try to, to correct in Fly? Uh, okay. So, so historically, um, initially people were trying to, to do this as follows. Basically, they said, okay, we had this very noisy reads. Let's try to error correct them first and then reuse the existing assemblers because, um, because the existing assemblers such as, um, Celera assembler for, for Sanger reads that, that is based on overlap graphs was basically designed to, to similar purposes for like, uh, Sanger reads were, were longer than the luminaries, uh, um, a thousand base pairs long. And this was somewhat similar to what early long read studies were getting. And the idea was, okay, let's error correct these reads somehow and then simply feed it to existing assemblers. Um, and that's what uh, people did. And they initially were trying to error correct uh, PacBio. So PacBio was historically the first long read sequencing technologies. And um, they used to error correct PacBio reads with Illumina. Um, and this is because, of course, was like challenging by itself. So you need to map these short reads to your long and noisy reads. And then you basically substitute the, uh, the parts of, uh, the mapped parts of long reads with your, uh, short Illumina sequencing. And then you, you, uh, continue to do this with like next, uh, Illumina reads and so on. And in the end, you theoretically will get like a accurate and long reads. And then you can, and then, they were using Celera Assembler to, to get your, uh, final context and, and chromosomes. Um, and then, um, like the next studies, they were trying to error correct bug bio reads without any extra information. So this, this is something that was called self error correction. And the idea is similar. So you somehow align, uh, you do pairwise alignments of all bug bio reads. And you take one single read and you, you have all the other reads that aligns to this one. And then you try to sort of compute a consensus of, of multiple reads. Um, which will result into like, uh, sort of more, uh, confident sequence. And then you can, uh, you can feed the error corrected sequences to, to the, uh, Solera. And so this is something that uh, people are still, I think this is a still a dominating approach. Error correct first and then assemble. And, um, the first, first assembler was, uh, called PBCR, I believe. And mm, then there were two more popular assemblers that are still being used and like they're still the most state of the art. Uh, first one is called Falcon and it was developed in, in PacBio at this time, at that time. And the other one is called Canoe. And Canoe is, is interesting because it's, it is sort of a, a fork of Celera Assembler. So it's, it's, it borrowed a lot of 
code and a lot of ideas from the original Solar Assemblers and even the original software engineers who worked on Solar Assemblers now, now working on Canoe. And I think this is very exciting. So if you think about this, Solar Assembler was developed, uh, 20 years ago and it's still being used and it's still being sort of, so I think this, this tells us something about the, the, I mean, the quality of the work that people did in the past. Anyway, um, so the, uh, the problem here is that this error correction step is very, uh, time consuming because you still need to compute all versus all pairwise alignments and the errors make this problem very difficult. So the more, the higher error rate you need to tolerate, more, the more difficult your, uh, alignment procedures will be, the more like, it kind of like expands your search space. And I mean, many groups were working on improving the speed of, of a correction step. But, um, something that we wanted to initially implement in Fly and in its precursor Abrune was what if we do not do error correction? What if we just try to assemble the, uh, the row PugBio and Oxford Nanopore reads? And then, uh, assemble, and we can assemble, maybe we can assemble the structure of the genome, and then we can error correct. And this way we can, uh, skip this error correction step, and this, this will result into like a significant speed, speed up. And so, Abrune was one of the first uh, assemblers that sort of implemented this parading. There was another one called Mini Awesome. Um, and I think they were released, mm, Mini Awesome was released a little earlier. And Mini Awesome was actually, it, it became a very popular assembler as well. Uh, it, it is created by Han Lee, who is also, he's, he's one of the, I think, one of the most famous, uh, sort of, uh, hackers in bioinformatics. So he, he's, the one who created the popular alignment tool, BWA. Um, he has some other work, like uh, population size estimation. Uh, and, and a couple of years ago, he started working on genome assembly, and he created this uh, mapping tool called Minimap, and then used it to, uh, in in assembly of, of long reads, in, and this resulted into a tool called Mini-ISM. Uh, so those were the first two, I believe, first two assemblers, Mini, Ism, and Abrune, that did not require error correction, and they were faster than uh, these, what we call here, hierarchical approaches, uh, such as, uh, and assemblers such as Falcon and Canoe. So give us some numbers, some timings uh, to to grasp the, the magnitude of what we're talking about here. So... If you were to assemble, I don't know, what, what do you usually assemble? Do you assemble a human genome? Do you assemble some kind of E. coli or a virus? We try to assemble different genomes. We try to make sure that uh, Fly works well on, on wide range of, of genomes. So currently you can... So Fly Fly is faster than uh, the early hierarchical approaches. But yeah, also I, I must know that like other... Uh, assemblers are getting faster as well. So they're like getting optimized and even hierarchical approaches, they, uh, they became faster. So I think for, for early studies for this PBCR tool, uh, they were assembling Drosophila and Drosophila is one of the, the most important model organisms. And they basically reported that they needed 
a few CPU years to, to assemble it initially. Um, and they obviously had, uh, had a good, I think very powerful, powerful computing cluster to, to perform this assembly. And this was basically because Drosophila genome has a lot of repeats. And the more repeats you have, the, the more difficult your, your alignment will, uh, your alignment becomes. And of course, it is optimized now. So out of two, out of those two CPU years, how much would you estimate would go towards read correction? Well, most of it is read correction. Oh, really? Yes. At least, at least it used to be. So like with Canoe and Falcon, currently you can assemble Drosophila, uh, maybe within a thousand CPU hours. So it's, it's like magnitudes faster now, but, um, it is still not as fast as fly. So fly can assemble a Drosophila in, uh, I think we have this number in the paper and, uh, so like wall clock time, it takes maybe, uh, it, it runs overnight. So this must be maybe a hundred or like a few hundred CPU hours. So we typically five to 10 times faster than, than Cano. That's very impressive. So let's talk about the, the secret sauce that, uh, Fly uses. So the core idea, as I understand it, or, or the core insight to spitting it up is realizing that you don't need to error correct the reads, but obviously you do, right? But there, there is a good reason why people used to mm-hmm. error correct. So what do you replace that with? How do you, have a good assembly without error correction? What was the insight that allowed you to skip error correction? Um, so this was originally developed in, in the Abrune assembler. And the insight was that it was basically the A pruning graph. And this was originally proposed by uh, Paul Pesner, I believe, in, in like early 2000s. So what, what is an Abrune graph? So Abrune graph is, you can think about it as a generalization of, of Debrune graph. So in Debrune graph, you sort of, you can think about a construction process of the graph. So, um, what you do, you take your reads, you split them into sequences of k-mers, and then you glue the k-mers if they spell the same sequence. So Abraham Graph says, okay, we have an abstract set of reads and like abstract sequences, and then you can glue them based on whatever criteria you want. And you, you can use, um, local alignments to glue, to glue sequence instead of cameras. And this way you can actually tolerate some noise in, in your reads. Uh, but yes, you can think about Abruin as a generalization of this, uh, graph construction, uh, phase of the Abruin graphs. Mm-hmm. So do you glue K-mers still or do you glue the whole reads? You can define it in a different way. So this is a sort of a framework and, uh, in, and it depends on the application. So for instance, in, in Fly, we glue sequence based on local alignments. But um, originally in Abruin, we were proposed, we proposed to glue k but instead of gluing all k 
uh, as in Librium graph, we are gluing some k-mers. And uh, so this sort of like, we slightly change the rules of gluing and this is why we call it a Bruin graph because mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of generalized version. So when, when you say in fly you glue sequences it means you uh, do pairwise local alignments of all the reads against all the other reads mm -hmm. and you glue only the parts of the reads that locally align to exactly. each other. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, but all this sort of started from, uh, we, we, we using the ideas that we're described in a Bruin paper and basically the idea was that okay so we have noisy reads and most of the cameras in the streets are erroneous let's even even short cameras even cameras of size 15 and for for comparison the uh short read assemblers for luminary assemblers they use maybe 50 uh k equals 50 in short reads we use k, k equals 15 and still, if you enumerate all the gamers in your reads, most of them will be erroneous because they will likely contain, uh, contain errors. But there are some correct gamers. So aligning all the reads against all other reads sounds very expensive, right? The alignment algorithm itself is uh, let's say quadratic and then you have a quadratic on top of it which is all against all and um, how do you manage to to make that fast so in in fly we introduced something we called uh disjoint chicks mm, and yes you're right um it is expensive to align all reads against themselves and this would be like a step back to to this uh error correction techniques. In Fly, we propose, uh, we introduce disjointix. Um, and we, disjointix are, they are sort of similar to context. Uh, and the idea is that you can build this disjointix really, really fast. And you will cover your entire genome with this disjointix. And then you can build, uh, your graph and then you can compute alignments, pairwise alignments of this disjointix and build the graph. But instead of uh, working with the whole set of reads, you will be only working with this disjointix, so your like search space will be reduced significantly. Hmm. So do, do you want to explain what a contig is for for those who don't know? Right. So um, basically, the contig is a part of a, an assembled part of of the genome. So contexts are typically the output of genome assembler. Um, and this is because uh, usually genome assemblers do not, cannot recover the entire whole original genome sequence. And this is because there are some ambiguities in the graph caused by uh, repetitive regions in the genome that could not be uh, sort of Resolved, you cannot distinguish between long copies of, of repeats within the genome. And this is why, uh, mm, you cannot reconstruct the whole genome sequence, but you can reconstruct parts of it. Uh, and this parts is what we call this, uh, context. So a set of contexts covers your entire genome, but the order of this context is unknown. So you get like a set of sequences. And you know that 
they represent your genome, but you don't know the structure of the genome. And, uh, and this is actually where long reads come into play. Because with longer reads, you can resolve more uh, repeats. And thus your assembly will be more, will contain less context. So it will be less fragmented. Right. So, so the fewer contigs we get and the longer contigs we get, the better the assembly yes, is. Yes. That's true. Um, yeah. So, and the idea of fly is given the set of reads, we can generate this set of, um, sort of draft context. We call them disjointings because they are sort of less accurate than, uh, uh, this context that you'll get in the end of the assembly process. So we sort of construct this draft, uh, disjointings uh, using a greedy approach. So we simply take uh, a random read and try to extend it left and right based on this, uh, the overlapping, based on the overlap. So we take a read and we find all overlapping reads uh, from your, uh, from your set of reads. And then you uh, select any of those reads and you extend. And then you continue this process. So it's kind of like a greedy extension. And we can do this really fast because we do not compute all pairwise alignments. We only compute alignments for reads that sort of became a parcel of this joint TX. So this is why we can do this really fast. But on the other hand, mm, on the other hand, um, you do not guarantee that um, the disjointics are very accurate. Mm, they might contain incorrect resolved repeats because, uh, we do not attempt to, to resolve them at this stage. But the idea is that we can generate this set of disjointics really fast. And then we can build, uh, a Bruin or repeat graph. So we called in, in fly implementation, we call the graph that we are constructing a repeat graph. But you might think of it as a sort of a implementation of a Brewing Graph framework. And we can construct this repeat graph from disjointics, and it sort of fixes the issues that disjointics possibly have had. And in the end, we can sort of result into this repeat graph e really, really fast. We can generate it fast. We can and it's free of errors in, in, in the end once it's constructed. So this is the idea how we basically speed up the graph construction process. Right. So, um, so your repeat graph is sort of like an Abroin graph and an Abroin graph is in turn sort of like Debroin graph. So like for, for people who are familiar with the basics of genome assembly, but, uh, are not keeping up with the with all the publications, so mm-hmm. you can you can imagine it as a sort of deep run graph, right? And so uh-huh. your disjointics they spell out some paths, right, on the deep run graph, not necessarily the same paths that the genome itself right. spells. Yes, basically yes. So you may think about disjointics as a random box on on the genome graph. And this could be like, it, it, it could be a repeat graph, or you might think about this as a debris graph. And disjointics essentially represent walks on these graphs. And they do not necessarily correspond to the, uh, genomic path, the correct genomic path, 
because as I said, they might have contained incorrectly resolved repeats. Uh, but once the graph is constructed, we basically uh, have all these incorrectly resolved repeats collapsed. And this is, this is the intuition why um, the, uh, this sort of fixes the errors. And um, after the graph is built, we apply the uh, conventional uh, procedures that were originally developed for debugging graphs for short tree sequencing, such as repeat resolution. So I think as I, as I uh, was telling you in the beginning, we align reads on the repeat graph and then we resolve repeats. This time we resolve them accurately and, um, and then we generate your final uh, quantic sequence. Right, so uh, you keep bringing up the repeats. So, so let's talk about repeats. Why do they cause a problem for assembly and what, what does it mean to resolve a repeat? So the problem with repeats is, ima let's imagine you had a genome with no repeats at all. So the sequence is purely unique. In this case, you should be able to assemble the genome, the entire chromosome, uh, really, really easy. Um, so Because there's just one way to stitch together all just, the reads. There's just one way to stitch together all the reads. Once you have repeats, it's more difficult because once you hit the repeat, you don't know which copy of this repeat is it. And it could be like in, in multiple places in the genome. And you, you need to be really careful, uh, because through, you, you may sort of jump from, from one location of the repeat to another location of repeat. And this, this will result in something that uh, we call a misassembly when you like artificially join two different regions of, of the genome. So, um, and to distinguish between repeat copies, uh, you can imagine that you need a read that is longer than, than the repeat. So this way the repeat kind of bridges, uh, the read bridges the repeat because it has unique anchors on the left and on the right side of the repeat that we can use to, to tell, uh, okay, this repeat came to like, this position from this position of the genome because we know this unique sequence is um, is adjacent to this unique sequence on the left and on the right. Um, and to but to basically to resolve this repeat, and this is the idea behind the resolving repeat. You need reads that are longer than repeats, and you need unique sequence anchors. Um, and the problem is basically you need to identify repeats in your reads. And you need to um, encode them somehow to to resolve them accurately. And this is why this is actually why the assemblers use different kinds of graphs. Um, so we think it is it is critical to encode these repeats and to know where they are in the graph in the assembly to accurately resolve them. And the Bruin graphs. One of the benefits of debugging graphs and related graphs, such as repeat graphs that we use, is they that they explicitly encode repeats, and they give you the boundaries of these repeats. Tell they tell you where these repeats are. How exactly do they encode repeats? Well, basically, um, you will have edges that correspond to repeat sequence. So uh, some of the edges of your graph will, will correspond to the unique sequence, but other edges will sort of encode the repeats. 
and the junctions between these edges will correspond to the boundaries of, of repeats. And a, a simplest example of a repeat could be that you have one single edge that is a repetitive edge, and you have two unique sequences that enter this repeat from the left side, and then you have two unique sequences that exit this repeat on the right side. And sort of if your um, unique unique entrances are A and B, and then the exits are C and D, this repeat sort of allows you to transitions. It allows you to transition from A to C and from B to D, or it allows you to transition from A to D and from B to C. And this sort of creates the ambiguity because you don't know which which path corresponds to the, the correct genome genome path in the graph. And we we will we are looking for these kind of structures when we uh when we try to classify each edge as, as either unique or repetitive. So to to go back to fly, so the pipeline of, of fly looks like this. So first you compute the disjoint ticks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we talked about how you do that. So you keep extending the, the mm -hmm. reads. It is very simple. We just keep extending reads until... Until we're done, basically, until we hit some sequence that is already assembled. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, only at that point you actually start building a graph, right? Yes. We start building the graph after we basically based on the disjointives that we have constructed. Right. So how, how does that process work? Um, so we take our disjointives and we do pairwise alignments between we, we compute all possible local alignments, uh, within this set of disjoint ticks. Uh, but it is easier to do than computing pairwise alignment between, uh, the entire set of reads because you have much less sequence now. So, um, disjoint ticks sort of compactly represent your read sets as, as it's kind of like, uh, simplifies the read representation. So you like condense, you collapse all your redundancy in reads into like a single disjointive or multiple disjointives. So it's sort of like a consensus sequence. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and we compute the uh, local alignments. And then the idea is that we sort of glue the sequence that was aligned. And this sequence, this glued part will be, most of them will be the repetitive parts. So we take this local alignments and we glue the sequence and, um, and we, we result into a repeat graph. So compare it with a Debian graph construction. In Debian graph construction, we glue all k-mers that spell the same strings. In repeat graph, we glue the sequence that was aligned that is highly similar. So this is essentially the same idea. But, um, there's a different implementation because, uh, it is, it is difficult to apply the burn graphs to long reads directly because of the high error rate. And we compute the local alignments allow us to tolerate this high noise of, of long reads. So that's mm -hmm. the, the idea behind repeat graphs. We, we want to use this similar framework to Debian graphs because there's a lot of methods 
that have been developed uh, already and we want to reuse them. But to construct the graph, we need to be more creative because of the high, high noise rate. Right, that makes sense. So once you have a repeat graph, you can apply all the algorithms for, mm -hmm. for the prime graphs. But uh, can, can you walk us through those uh, subsequent steps? So, well, the most important part is uh, repeat resolution. So once you have your graph constructed, you have all repeats of that, um, that are longer than some, uh, some predefined thresholds revealed on the graph as edges. And we typically use um, threshold. We typically collapse repeats of size longer than uh, 1,000. And for for most of the data sets, this threshold is even uh, higher. So it could be 3,000 or 5,000. So can, can you explain what that means? What, what does it mean to collapse or not to collapse a repeat? So like in terms of construction, we... Let's say we have a, uh, a threshold of length, uh, 3k. This means that we will only compute local, we only store local alignments that are longer than 3k. And all the repeats that are revealed on the graph will also be longer than 3k. And we sort of ignore the repeats that are shorter, which greatly simplifies the, the structure of the graph. And this is how different graphs and short tree assembly approaches are different. So, in short tree assembly approaches, um, on Debian graph, you will get repeats that are very, very short. Uh, that could be, say, like all repeats longer than uh, 50 uh, base pairs will be uh, on the graph. And this complicates the graph structure a lot because you have more in genomes. You have this is sort of an exponential distribution of free length. So you have a lot of shorter repeats, and once you increase your uh, threshold, you'll get less and less repeats. And like on bacterial genomes, there are only a few, actually only a few repeats, let's say on the E. coli genome, so bacteria are different, different bacterial genomes are very different, but let's say for E. coli genome, there are only maybe seven repeats that are longer than 5,000 base pairs, and no repeats that are longer than 7,000. Uh, and because we have, uh, long reads, we can basically increase this, this, uh, repeat length threshold because we kind of bypass the shorter repeats. They're like sort of stay inside the reads and we do not, we do not care about them because we like sort of, uh, we compute the alignments that are longer than repeat length. So we're, we're kind of safe. Nice. Nice. And right, so you were telling how the repeat resolution works, I think. Yes. Um, so repeat resolution, mm, basically we have our graph with repeats collapsed. In, well, by, by collapsing, I mean that original repeats in the genome, they are collapsed into a single edge on, on the graph. And then we take our original reads and align and I align the streets to the graph. And now let's think about this, uh, this simple repeat example that I was telling you about. So there are two entrances, A and B, and two exits of, uh, C and D. And if you see that all reads consistently take one of the paths, but not the others. So let's say most of the reads align to, uh, traverse 
A, then they enter the repeat and then they exit at C, and like the second half of the reads enter B, and then traverse the repeat and exit and at D. Then we know, actually this tells us what, um, how the genome traverses this graph. And if we consistently see this support by, by reads, we can simplify the graph by, uh, sort of separating this, uh, two repeat copies into two separate, uh, paths. And this is, this is what we, we call, uh, repeat resolution. So if we see, uh, an evidence from reads that genome takes one path, but not the other, we can, we can separate this part of, of the genome path. And this way we simplify the graph. Okay. So now you have a simplified repeat graph, which has, uh, I guess more edges, but fewer junctions. Yes, exactly. And, and what, what do you do next? And so next is basically, as you said, um, uh, it has slightly more edges, but yes, the, it's less tangled. It has less, uh, repeat junctions because some repeats are resolved and all. And as a result, you will have like a long unbranching, non-branching paths on this graph as a result of repeat resolution. And these non-branching paths will correspond to, to the reconstructed, uh, genome sequence. And this will be your context, basically. So after repeats are resolved, we generate context as non-branching paths on the, on the final simplified graph. And this, this will be the output of the, the assembly, uh, of the genome assembly. So some, some of those contexts will be, um, simple contexts, but some will be unresolved repeats, right? Um, that's, that's right. So yes, in reality, it's a little, little more complex because, um, let's say, um, Let's think about this, uh, repeat example again. So let's assume that this time you could not resolve a repeat. You could not, uh, because it was, it was longer than the, uh, the contact length. Oh, okay. Uh, because, um, the repeat length was longer than, uh, the read length. You were not able to resolve this repeat. Mm, but then, um, you have your, a and B entrances, and you know that A, that repeats always, so you know that uh, the path, the genome path goes from A inside the repeat, but you don't know how it exits, but um, you, well, you still know that the repeat, like the A, unique part A ends with the repeat. So when you're generating context, you basically can extend the unique edge A, with the repetitive sequence. So it, it increases the length of your context a little bit and it also simplifies the representation. So most of the context will be, uh, representing the, the unique, uh, parts of the genome. Um, so, and we also try not to sort of over. So in this example, we will extend context A and B to the right into inside the repeat, but we will not do this with, uh, we will not extend the exits C and D to the left inside the repeat because 
it will kind of like create artificial duplicated sequence. So we want to avoid that. Um, but yeah, so this is the idea of, of quantic generation. We take the non-branching paths, we take the unique non-branching paths, and try to extend it into the repetitive parts in the graph if there's no ambiguity in terms of how, how the uh, um, genomic path goes until we sort of hit the uh, ambiguous junction, then we stop. So this process gives you a set of contexts which are um, separate sequences, mm -hmm. right? But when we download a, a genome build, let's say, of Drosophila or of human uh, in, in the FASTA format, then we have a single sequence per chromosome, right? It's not a set of contexts per chromosome, mm -hmm. which is a s single sequence. So how do you uh, put those contexts together in a single sequence? Okay. Um, so this is, yes, so you're right that, uh, for, let's say with long reads for, um, bacterial genomes, you, you will most likely get your, uh, entire chromosomes assembled. And maybe for simple eukaryotic genomes as well. But you're right that for, still for more complex genomes such as Drosophila or human, we will not get the whole chromosomes. You will, you will get a few contexts per chromosome. And then you need to, uh, somehow assign your context to chromosome and, and assemble. And this is what people call, uh, genome finishing. This is a whole different process. And there are many different techniques. So, and they also evolving and changing constantly. So, in this, um, there are a few things you can do. You can try to use complementary technologies to basically what we call scaffold your contexts, uh, into more, uh, contiguous sequences. Um, let's say, mm, and there might be different, um, different ways to get this evidence of the order. So you basically want to order your contexts mm -hmm. and for instance, um, there is, uh, well, one simplest, one simple way could be if you have a, some sort of genome map. It could be a genetic map, um, um, or like restriction map. So you sort of have an idea how the chromosome structure looks like and you know, uh, how, you know, the approximate location of the genes on your chromosome from some, maybe from some genetic studies. And then you can locate these genes on the, on your context. And if you have two contexts and you know that's like two genes on this context follow each other, they are close on the chromosome, you can sort of, uh, put, stitch these two contexts together. So, and there are many biotechnologies that allow you to do this, not based on genes, but based on different information such as, um, bio-nano, Binano is um, basically a technology that allows you to get a chromosome maps based on, uh, I think, restriction. This is sort of restriction maps. So um, you can you can put the like a long chromosome fragment in in a machine, and it will uh, cut it at at the particular locations. 
which uh, are recognized by some enzymes. So if you have like a particular nucleotide pattern at, at, at some location, it will like enzyme will cut it. And then you can uh, image, uh, you can like visualize this restriction map. Um, and you can basically do this computational for your reconstructed context as well. And then you can compare these two restriction maps and this will, uh, might tell you how to order your contexts so they are um, sort of consistent with the restriction maps that you're getting. And there is, there are, uh, other technologies such as high C. So high C, with high C, you get, uh, pairs of reads, um, that, um, that come from related regions of, of chromosomes. And if you have these pairs of reads that consistently allows align to like a pair of, of contigs, then you can, uh, say that, okay, these contigs, uh, they, uh, must be, uh, connected together in, in the genome. And, and you can use the complementary sequencing technologies as well. Uh, but usually genome finishing is, is like a very long and time consuming process. And at this stage, you also need to make sure that you need to do a lot of quality controls. So, um, but I think with long reads, this process, uh, becomes simpler because you have, uh, you have longer assemblies in the beginning. And mm, also there are more, uh, biotechnologies that, that like can help. So this, this field is improving, uh, rapidly, um, like genome finishing. And we, in the past few years, we started to get like more and more complete or almost complete, um, genomes, but there cool. are still challenges. Yes. If you think about this human, human reference genome is technically not complete yet. Mm -hmm. Yes. You, you get, uh, entire chromosomes, but there are gaps in, in the chromosome. So there are like parts filled with ants. If you, if you look in the faster sequence, you see like a lo long stretch of ants, like megabytes of ants. Um, and this means that we don't know the sequence inside this region. We know the order. We know that there's something in there and we know the order of the adjacent sequence, but we don't know what's inside. And, um, and this is why we actually need long reads. We, we, I believe we can use long reads to fill these, uh, gaps. Um, in, and there are actually ongoing efforts to finally finish the human genome using the, uh, ultra long, uh, Oxford nanopore reads that basically allow you to span these gaps in, in full or almost like entirely. Yeah. Uh, didn't they, uh, finish the X, the human X chromosome recently? Yes. They, they recently announced that they, uh, Assembled the X chromosome in full. And the, the most difficult part was to assemble the centromere region because I believe it's roughly three megabytes long. And, um, it's, uh, it is not yet possible to produce reads that like are this long. So you might get reads maybe over hundred thousands and maybe a couple of hundred, uh, routinely. And then you need to some, you need some creativity to basically stitch these reads together and span this centromere. And the challenge is that centromere is basically a, a tandem repeat that is 
repeated many many times so you you may think about this this like a uh 200 base pair sequence that is repeated millions uh, all hundreds of thousands times in the centromere so and you still somehow need to to assemble through it so this is like i think a very interesting and uh, interesting challenge that people will focus in in yeah, the future definitely so one way to judge the quality of of an assembly is uh, the the classic metric which is called ng50 but you also propose a modified version of that metric called NGA50. So can you talk about these two metrics and what is the difference between them? Okay, so, well, NGA50, I think, was originally introduced in, um, I, th- I believe, in one of the uh, assemble tone studies, or maybe gauge. So there were, like, uh, early studies that were evaluating the, the quality of different, uh, of many different short assemblers. So, and they were like introducing different metrics. And then it was implemented in the Quast, uh, quality assessment tool for, for long, uh, for, for genome assemblers. And now the, it is one of the, uh, default and I believe one of the most important metrics, uh, for quality assessment. So basically, Let's start from N50. So original N50 was, was, uh, the quality, uh, metric for, for genome assembly. And as, as we were talking about, the longer your conducts are, the less fragmented they are, the better assembly is. But, um, the number of conducts, uh, sometimes might be misleading simply if you simply count the number of conducts because you might have it doesn't take into account the length distribution. So you might have um, a few really, really long contexts, but maybe thousands of short contexts that could be artifacts of the assembly process. Uh, and this will inflate your, your contact counts. So N50 was introduced such as a sort of like a weighted measure or that takes into account the length distribution. And it is defined as uh, so N50 is a, um, so let's say you have all your contacts sorted from the longest to the shortest and you start, um, uh, taking and you're going from the left to the right and you're taking your, uh, the longest contacts until the set of contacts, your set of contacts cover the half of the entire assembly size. And the length of this context that you took last will be your N50. So essentially, the contexts that are longer than N50 covered half of your uh, total assembly size. And um, this is a very, like, this This is one, I, I believe, the most popular metric for, for genome uh, assembly comparison. And um, NG50 is is very similar. But instead of um, covering the assembly size, uh, you need to cover the uh, genome size. And this is because um, the assembly size might be shorter than uh, your target genome size. Um, because of the collapse repeats, because of some missing sequence, uh, there, there could be different reasons. And, and G50 also allows you to compare multiple assemblies because multiple uh, assemblies might have different size as well, and NG50 sort of like uh, is a common denominator for for 
uh, multiple assemblies comparison. Okay, so now NGA50. So there's like a letter A, extra letter A, and it stands for alignment. Um, so the problem with NG50 is that uh, it doesn't take, it doesn't evaluate the correctness of the assembly. Uh, and you might think about this as a, let's say, you have your assembly. How can you improve it? How can you improve N50? Well, you can do, you can simply concatenate all your contexts together. And this, and you get like a perfect N50 or an NG50, but will it be a correct assembly now. Uh, so what NGA50 does or NA50 is you, um, you align your context if you have a reference genome. So this is a reference based metric. And a reference genome is basically your uh, gold standard for your assembly. And this is something that you can compare it to and you can evaluate your algorithms. Um, and typically, um, you don't have reference genomes for like completely novel organisms, but you, you have reference genomes for, for organisms that already have been sequenced or you might have. So, um, okay, NJF50 is a reference based metric. And what you do, you align your context to the reference genome. And then if you see any breakpoints, if you see that a context is um, kind of like a one part of the context aligns to one origin of the genome and the other part aligns somewhere like to a completely different part of the genome, then you can split this, uh, then you split this context into two parts. And NGA50 is basically NG50 computed on this uh, context that are broken at the at these uh, inconsistent positions. So you try to undo the cheating. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. And uh, so you compared your uh, tool with the other assemblers and mm -hmm. in, in terms of NG50 and NGA50. And uh, what did you find? So we found that... Uh, that fly typically uh, on 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 many genomes, it consistently um, performs equally well, and sometimes even and sometimes better on on some uh, on various genomes that we like garbage marking, such as East genomes or C. elegans genome, um, and we significantly improved on. Uh, canoe and mazurka assemblers, uh, on, on the human genome assembly. Um, and, and this is measured, uh, with this NGA and NG50 metrics, as well as the number of, we also evaluate the number of, uh, errors based on the structure comparison that I described. And, uh, on the human genome, we were also significantly faster. We were, I believe, roughly tenfold faster than, uh, than canoe. And Mazurka, and Mazurka is a hybrid assembler, actually. Um, and we, we see the similar trend for, for other genomes that we compare as well. So we, uh, typically as good as the other assemblers and sometimes to improve. Um, and we also consistently faster. And mm, right now we also, Work on uh, on sort of expanding uh, fly to metagenome assembly, and this um, presents uh, like additional challenges, such as uh, 
when you're assembling like a, a multiple, so you're essentially assembling multiple genomes uh, simultaneously instead of just one genome. So you can imagine that the problem is is uh, is much more difficult. Very cool, Mikhail. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I really like your work. There are both nice theoretical ideas around uh, around this disjointics and how to build the assembly graph, and mm-hmm. and also very impressive practical results in terms of the the runtime of the program and 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 its performance. So. Uh, yeah, pretty pretty cool tool, and uh, thank you. I'll uh, I'll, I'll look for a, an opportunity to to try it out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you, Roman. Thanks thanks for having me. It it was really interesting to talk to you and sharing our more most recent results. And I think it's it's a great way to to communicate to other people who who are interested in bioinformatics. So yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. <laughs>